we are at the dramatic conclusion of Laban's, uh, of Jacob's time at Laban's house, and, um, and it's kind of an interesting one, uh, because hopefully, I think we're reminded uh, that we're all becoming someone over time. Uh, that's what I was reminded of as I was uh, pr- kind of preparing for this morning, trying to figure out which way to go, uh, is that we are becoming someone over time, and oftentimes that is uh, indiscernible until we really keep a growth track. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, it also reminded me of my own life with Jacob and all of his wives and all of his children. Not that I have multiple wives, but I have multiple children. Uh, and their, their struggle to kind of live a life that is honoring to the Lord over a long period of time. This year marks 20 years that I've been with my wife. I've known her for 20 years. I've this will be the 19th year that we're married, and so I just kind of started thinking about, man, where has the Lord brought us, uh, what has he brought us through over two decades of a life together? And so I just started to recount, like, what has he been up to, and what have we been up to, uh, because I'm wondering as we look at, at Jacob, who am I becoming, because he becomes somebody different. And over the last 20 years, if I could just recount what it's been like, uh, we've lived in six different homes in three different cities. That's not a lot. Uh, when you think about the transient nature of Houston, six different homes, three different cities. We've had three kids. We've lost a child through miscarriage through that process. Um, we've had our hearts broken more times than we can count uh, in ministry, seeing people walk away from the faith. Uh, that's, that's just always heartbreaking. We have traveled. Uh, we've, we've had over 20 different jobs uh, combined. Uh, a lot of that is me during seminary and holding three jobs while she held one. Uh, if you don't know this about my seminary time, we had um, the women of the group that were all married to us. They called themselves the sugar mamas because they put us through seminary, and we're really grateful. And that's the only time you can call a teacher a sugar mama, uh, <laughs> is, is actually when you're, as, like, when you're so poor that a teacher's salary is like, oh, man, you're bringing it in, babe. Um, so that was what our life was like there. Um, uh, we've been on countless vacations, hiked numerous peaks together at the center of, of it all. Jesus has held us together by God's grace. And we look back, and I look back, and I think, man, who have we become over 20 years together? Who, who are we witnessing um, to our kids who are they seeing that we value? What do they see that we're valuing in our lives, through our rhythms, throughout every week? Who will our kids become as they witness what we value? You see, I know this, we're all becoming someone. And it's a long, strenuous process, far longer than we'd hoped for. And as we're becoming that someone, the question I have for us this morning is, is that person the person that God wants you to become. If we're all becoming someone, is it the person that God wants us to become? We are again at the dramatic conclusion of Jacob's time at Laban's house. 20 years have gone by since he fled his brother. You remember this? Uh, Esau is pretty mad at Jacob because Jacob stole the first the blessing of the firstborn, his his birthright from Esau over a, a bowl of soup, and then of course he deceived his father Isaac. And, um, and now Esau wants to murder him, and so Esau, excuse me, Jacob flees from home. He goes to his, his mother's homeland, Padan Aram, where he will, he will spend the next 20 years of his life at his uncle's house, 
And it's there that he sees Rachel, right? He sees her. He falls in love with her form, the Bible says, though you made fun of me uh, for saying that. Uh, he, he loves her form. Um, he loves her body, right? And yet for Leah, she has, she has no passion in her eyes, and that's a deterrent for her. Leah's the firstborn, and so what does Laban do? He tricks Jacob into marrying Leah first, and then he says, but if you work with, for me for another seven years, I'll give you Rachel the one that you love, her form. And so for 14 years, he had to work there, was a servant there, was a slave to Laban, ultimately, for these two women that he was now forced into marrying, uh, both of them. He then takes upon himself two more concubines or wives, we're not really sure in the text. Um, and those servants are there to ultimately bear children for Rachel, Rachel and Leah. And so over time, he has, to this point, 20 years 12 children, 11 sons, one daughter by four different women. And now 20 years have gone by, and he's asked, like, if I could make a living here so that I can be, take care of my own family, Laban, what would that be? And Laban negotiates, and he says, if you can have all the spotted or the speckled flock, right? And he, he does this crazy mate, mating ritual with his flocks. God blesses it. And we talked about this last week, right? When we have a, there's a dangerous point of serving second things over the first thing of God and his power. And here we are at the end of 20 years of Jacob's life. And I don't know about you, but for the first time, I'm really encouraged by my man Jacob in Genesis 31. There's been a lot of chapters on Jacob, a lot of nonsense, a lot of deception, a lot of manipulation, um, a lot of sleeping with multiple women, just puzzling to me, and yet here we see God's favored man changing and doing something here in this text that he had not done before. And ultimately, through all this, God is calling Jacob back home. In verse 3, we read a lot of verses in verse 3, that's what we heard, right? The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's and to your family, your kindred, and I will be with you. God is calling Jacob home. And he's also calling you home. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, as ultimately we're all longing for a homecoming with our God who's calling us to himself. But I have to ask, who has Jacob become? Is he the same guy that he once was in 20 years? And what about Laban, the guy that God's chosen man, Jacob, was around for the last 20 years. Did Jacob's faith rub off at all with his uncle Laban? And what about Laban's sons and Jacob's sons? Are they becoming the kind of people that God is still going to put his anointed choice over? Of course, the answer will be yes for some of them. All right, so as we look at this, as we look at, at Jacob's homecoming, Ultimately, what I want to look at is the three main characters in Genesis 31. First, we want to look at Laban. Second, we want to look at Jacob. And then the other main character that steps out of the shadows for the first time in many chapters and begins to speak and play a prominent role is God himself. So as we look at those three characters, and before we look at those three characters, I just want to recap what we read. Because you could get lost in, number one, maybe the different translation if you were reading along in the ESV, but also you could get lost in the multiple 
55 verses. So if I could break it down into four different sections, here's what they would be. Verses 1 through 21, ultimately, Jacob is hastily fleeing Laban. These are his plans. Um, While Laban is busy shearing sheep in the fields, which would have been in the springtime, Laban, uh, Jacob, is posturing to leave Laban. And Laban's posture has changed. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our, our father's, he gained all his wealth. A.K.A., there's robbery at hand. Jacob is only becoming rich because he's stealing from our father. This is what Laban's sons are saying to one another. God reveals himself to Jacob, and he finally realizes it's time to go. Jacob then uh, reveals that God has told him to flee Laban in verses 11 and 13. His wives basically say, hey, do whatever it is that God has told you to do. And Rachel steals Laban's gods. Kind of a weird thing. We don't know why she stole her dad's gods other than my own personal opinion. I'll step out over here for conjecture. I think it was just spite. I think it was, you ruined my life by giving Leah to my husband. I'm going to take your gods with me. Mm. That's all I got. I don't know if that's true. Rachel's probably looking down from heaven going, nope, you got it wrong. That's all right. We're doing our best with what we have. That's first section, first 21 verses. The next section, verses 22 through 35, is Laban is in hot pursuit of Jacob and confronts him about stealing his flocks, his daughters, and his God. But on the way, God intervenes and says, hey, Laban, I know you want to kill my guy Jacob, but don't forget, he's my guy. So don't only not touch him, don't speak to him good or bad. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Laban catches up with Jacob after seven days, and he basically does say some things to Jacob, but he basically says this, hey dude, you've stolen everything from me, and I'd like to kill you, but God says I can't do that. Your God says, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do it. Jacob allows Laban to search through his, all the tents for his gods, not knowing that Rachel had stolen them. And he says, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. Now, many people will say that Rachel got away with the theft of her father's gods and that Jacob put the death sentence on his own wife unknowingly. This happens a lot throughout the scriptures, by the way. What you find out later is that Rachel will die giving birth to their youngest son, Benjamin. And perhaps they're connected. We don't know. Perhaps they're not. But nonetheless, she does end up dying in the scriptures. We go on to the next section in verses 36 through 42. Jacob lays into Laban, basically saying, hey, you've oppressed me for 20 years, and I've served you with integrity. I mean, Jacob might have an inflated view of himself. Uh, He didn't quite do it with integrity. He did manipulate. He did use certain strategies. Uh, I don't know that it was as as much integrity as he may have thought. But nonetheless, he's basically saying, hey, I'm not the one here that's changed wages ten times. You are. How dare you come after me and accuse me of stealing from you? I don't believe in your gods anyways. Why would I take them? Ultimately is this third section. They They are coming at each other pretty strong in that third section. And finally, the last section, 43 through 55, Jacob and Laban make a peace treaty to go their own separate ways. And you see um, all this heap of witness and all this uh, Hebrew talk and Aramean talk and all this. And ultimately, all it is is you stay on your side of the rocks, and I'm going to stay on my side of the rocks. Deal? Deal. And that's basically how this thing ends. And of course, if you're like me and I'm reading 
through the eyes of Laban. I get a heavy heart reading verse 55 where he wakes up one, one morning, probably before the dawn. He's about to head out, and he kisses all his grandkids on the forehead, and he gives his daughters one last hug, knowing he will never see them again. And that the fruit of the way that he has lived for all those lies and deception and manipulation and oppression of Jacob now bears its fruit in separation from all that he has loved. And that's what we just read. So now let's look at these characters. And I think as we do, the first thing that we're going to see is that there is a warning here for all of us in the person of Laban. Twenty years with God's chosen son Jacob and Laban changes none. There's a great warning here for all of us that ultimately uh, we have to be a people that chart growth. And if we're not charting growth, then we'll ultimately drift into ungodliness and a stagnant and stubborn faith. Put yourself in the position of Laban. Again, you know you have been blessed because Jacob has been there. If you looked back uh, in Genesis 30, 27, right, or 29, verse 27, he says, I know that I'm blessed because you're here. God, your God has revealed himself to me, Jacob, and the only reason why I have so much is because you've been here. If you've been around someone that you can attribute success and blessing to, I just wonder if that's changed you. Would it have changed you if you were Laban? If the God of all creation that you didn't believe in interrupted your life twice now, would you believe him? Would you know it if he spoke to you? And again, who are you becoming? This week, um, my wife's back at work, so I got the duty of taking my children on my off day to their doctor's checkups, and it was delightful, and I had to pay for masks to put on because I didn't have any, and I wasn't perturbed at that at all. But nonetheless, I went in, and um, I, I did what we needed to do, and they, they, they measured our children, and I don't know if you've seen our children, but they're on the growth charts, and that's good. That's helpful. Um, but the growth charts, as they get compared to other children in their age range, you see it over time. You can kind of see my daughter, my son, my other daughter. You can see their growth chart, um, and it goes up like this, and it plateaus, and it goes. And then there's this wide range of everyone else and their percentiles. And I don't get too caught up in the percentiles because there's a bunch of comparison, and that's not healthy for the soul, right? But nonetheless, this week... Uh, the doctors showed us growth charts, and you would think, like my kids usually go, I didn't grow at all this year. And then we, we bring the, the, the door down that we, we measure all of our children on, and every year they've actually grown, even though they don't feel it. They've grown an inch or two or three or whatever it may be, and the same thing is shown to you in these growth charts that you can go to with your children or yourself, perhaps, whatever it may be. And, and ultimately it shows you that what was indiscernible actually can get tracked over a long period of time. For Laban, there was no growth chart for him. If there was a growth chart, he didn't register on it. It was stagnant, it was stubborn, and it was the same thing for 20 years. And this is what we see ultimately. Laban sees the world through a narcissistic, self-centered lens. You might go, man, that's, that's, that's harsh. That's rough. I, I, I'm just reading the text and drawing some conclusions, and let me invite you to do the same. Like, 
Like Laban's shortcomings absolutely impacted how he saw the world, but also how his sons saw the world. We've already read one and two, right? His sons start to see the world through the lens of someone taking from him instead of someone's, uh, like God really having a hand of blessing on them. And so all of a sudden, his worldview is, is shaping his son's worldview, just as our worldview as parents is going to get passed down to our kids. Friends, we are discipling our children through our rhythms and our values, whether we want to or not. The good and the bad, they're going to catch as part of your discipleship of their life. Your values are on display, just like for Laban, just like for Jacob and his family. Your values are on display. Whatever you're doing, good or bad, you are discipling your children into holy or unholy rhythms. Laban's shortcomings were being discipled into his children. They watched Laban, though, deceive Jacob into marrying Leah. They, they saw him enslave Jacob for Rachel. They, they saw him make it difficult for Jacob to provide for his own family. And now that Jacob had become, a, had become a man of great increase, as it says at the end of chapter 30, man, Laban paints a scenario not only of one uh, where he is being taken from, but it is one of victimhood of envy, and of loss. Laban inflated his own character, and he threw shade at the character of Jacob. As he did so, he revealed that he was an absolute narcissist. If you look at verse 43, look at the perspective of Laban. After Jacob lays into him in verse 42, or all throughout 36 through 42, Laban then says this in verse 43. Laban answered and said to the daughters are my daughters. No, they're not. You gave them away in marriage and made him pay for them. The children are my children. No, they're actually Jacob's children. The flocks are my flocks. No, you cut a deal that you didn't like in the end. And all that you see is mine. No, Mustafa, that's not true either. No, instead, Laban is looking at this through a lens of victimhood and of loss and through a narcissistic lens to say, I know we made all these deals over time, but you've taken from me. And this has not turned out how I'd hoped. He inflates his own character. And when everything revolves around a narcissist, if you are around a narcissist, been in relationship with a narcissist, you, that you cannot see, a narcissist cannot see someone else's success apart from what they have contributed to it. And it is a tiring thing, friends, to be around someone who is always taking credit for your life. It's a rough and tiring thing, and I'd imagine for Jacob, for 20 years, it just got tiresome, and it was time to go. Laban's faith, this is again the warning of Laban, Laban's faith was convenient, comfortable, and consumeristic. Just, just go with me here. In verse 49, you start to see this consumeristic viewpoint of his faith. It's interesting. He is the one that says this. He named it, uh, Jacob named it uh, Galid and Mizpah, for Laban said, the Lord watch between you and me. He's calling upon the name, the Jewish name of God, Yahweh. Laban is. And he's saying, your God, the Lord, the one who created all things, the covenant-keeping God, watch between you and me. We are out of one another's sight. 
what is he saying? I don't really believe in this God, but since it's convenient for me in this moment, I'm going to call upon the name of your God. He is consumeristic as it can be in his faith. He, he calls upon the Lord when it's convenient to his agenda. He instead, though, serves gods that were made by his own hands. Like, if you want to talk about a consumeristic agenda with God, it's the God that you created in your own mind. It's the God that requires nothing of you. This is the God of this age. It's the God that you can disagree with and that he bends around your agenda instead of the God that is in charge of all things and you bend around his agenda. We don't make gods with our hands anymore. That would be faux pas. We don't put them on our dashboard, although they do in India. Uh, and so like, they, we don't put them on our dashboard anymore. We just, we just hide them away in our hearts. We don't tuck them away underneath the camel's uh, saddle uh, and then say, the, women, the way of women is, is upon me, although the NLT said, it's, it's my time of the month, ultimately, is what it said. The way of women is upon me. That's not what we do. We don't hide them away. We don't sit on them. We tuck them away. Instead, we put them in our heart, and we become Chipotle Christians, right? We go down the line, and we'll say, we'll say brown rice. We'll say black beans. We'll say, I'll take chicken. We'll go through and have a little fajita veggies on a certain day. We'll say no to the sour cream because that's going to run through my arteries, and that's not good. We just pick and choose what we want. And we do the same thing when we read something in the scriptures about all kinds of social issues that we disagree with. And we go, well, I mean, that's probably an outdated book. I mean, it's been corrupted over time, over how many years, with how many people. I mean, I mean really, men are all over that. And the fallibility of man, this can't be trusted anymore. This is a part of who we are. There are certainly people in your neighborhoods, certainly people in your neighborhood groups, certainly people in this church that definitely believe that this is just to be pick, picked over according to, my according to my preferences, according to what I think is true. But does that not put the scriptures down at your feet and Jesus down with him? but instead to raise and elevate the authority of God where it goes, above us, not equal to us. Yes, Jesus came down and was equal to us. He represented the king and the God who reigns and rules above all. Oh, for Laban, there is a warning here for us that we would not be consumeristic, that we would not be stubborn in our faith. May we not, may we not be a people who pick and choose what we like about the Bible. And so, like, ultimately, here's what I think. Like, what are we picking and choosing these days? I think it's whether or not a Christian community is vital to your Christian faith. More and more do I reconnect with people over time, people that have seminary degrees, people that have, they have spent thousands of dollars on master's degrees in the Bible, and years go by before they've ever been inside of a church. And I wonder what is going on after the pandemic that it created in us a consumeristic culture that we would live stream Jesus. Are you kidding? We all did this. We all had to do it. But over time, it's not good and healthy for us. Would we be a people that don't consume whether or not community, not just any community, a forming Christian community would be vital to our souls? vital to our growth over those next 20 years. So here's what I did. Um, this was another free book that I got over the summer. I'm full of books. I think these were already taken. There might be two or three left over there. It's called Rediscover Church. 
beautiful little tiny book about rediscovering the value of God's people for your life. I invite you to take whatever's left over here. You can have this one. I'm not going to throw it. Definitely not to you in the way back. If I did right now, it'd be pretty fun, but I'm not going to do it. But anyways, please take advantage of these resources. Ultimately, let us not be a people that consume. That's the warning of Laban. The encouragement of Jacob, though, is where I think is really just a beautiful change for us. Since Jacob has come upon the scene, he has been a disappointment and yet a true reminder of God's grace. Because here's the reminder. If God has chosen Jacob as an instrument of redemption in the world, then friends, because he's chosen you, you can't opt out to say like, well, I'm not good enough. No, no. Look at my man Jacob. He is a reminder of God's grace, of God's salvation by grace alone, not because he's good enough. There's nothing so far that has been good enough in Jacob, but instead God's holy agenda of bringing sinners into his kingdom and in his family and using them for his purposes. In this passage alone, you see Jacob acknowledging God's guidance. He is eager to obey God. He leads his family into the difficult decision of leaving leaving Laban's household, and he does so by bringing his wives in and saying, hey guys, I got this dream from the Lord. What do you guys think? He gives his wife, his wives, really unfortunate reality, he gives his wives a voice in their direction and what they're doing next. What a beautiful statement of humility that we've not seen in Jacob's life so far. He gives them a voice, and they say, well, you need to do what God is calling you to do, like any good wife will do when the husband says, or the wife says, and the husband should say, I think the Lord's telling us to do this. Yes, support them. Let us do what the Lord is calling us to do. Jacob defends himself against injustice, and though fear drives him away from Laban, he is resolute that he will not serve the gods of Laban. He stands on the God of his father in verse 42, right, first, uh, chapter 31. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, he's starting to appeal to a power that he knows he doesn't have. Man, there is... 20 long years have gone by, and you are starting to see a a beautiful man, one which we can go, okay, I'll follow that guy. One which we can say, okay, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and now eventually the God of Jacob will be added to that long line of heroes. And what do we see, right? God is calling Jacob home. He's calling him home to the promised land. Jacob is now eager to follow him, to obey him. And again, I started with this, but I'll reiterate this, that God is also calling us home. Ultimately, Jacob is being called to God. Not necessarily to the promised land, but he is being called to himself. Over these 20 years, God has burned away all that does not belong to God through trial, through suffering, through difficulty, and now Jacob is the kind of man that he will send back to the promised land, changed, renewed, and different. And I'd say he's doing the same thing for you. Well, how can I say that I know for certain that he is doing the same thing for you? 
For every trial and every circumstance and every disappointment and every joy, God is doing the same thing for you. And it says it right there in Romans 8, 29. You guys love Romans 8, 28. We all love Romans 8, 28, do we not? But let's keep reading in verse 29, which says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined beforehand to be conformed to the image of his Son, This is how I know that God is calling you back to himself because if you are a Christian, every trial, every circumstance, every difficulty, everything, small or big, every job, every place you've lived, every place you're going to live, every neighbor you've ever had that's disappointed you, every person in neighborhood group that never comes back, everyone and everything, everyone and everything is purposed to conform you back home. And what's back home? It's into the image of his son, Jesus. We were all made in the image of God. Remember this back in Genesis chapter 1? We've we've journeyed through this. I know we've slept since Genesis 1. We were all made in the image of God, but because we sinned, the image of God in us was marred. Not totally destroyed, but marred by sin. And when Jesus comes into our life, all of a sudden, that image is restored in us One degree of glory after another over time until eventually, through all of life's circumstances, we look more and more like Jesus. That's the point of your disappointing week. That's the point of your your trial. That's the point of the summer that I've, I've deemed in my quiet times and in my journaling the summer of loss. That's that's what that's 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 where I'm at. That's where I've been. People have asked me. I had, I had uh, some good time with my, my man, Josue, doing some church planning strategy, and he ended it with, how are you doing, brother? I don't like you for asking me that. I love you for asking me that. I said, I'm, I'm meh. He goes, I can tell. Okay, cool. I was hoping to hide that. So just a summer of loss, right? Just, just lots of loss. Going back to last summer, right? You could, you could look at, at some things that are just, just not what I'd hoped for. Like, haven't gotten the land yet, haven't, I mean, just, I mean, how many things? Gone, went on, I mean, I, I said this to you a couple weeks ago, went to the Frio, and there's no, no water in the Frio, are you, are you kidding? <laughs> Surely I should have Googled the right things, but didn't. It's, it's, it's exactly the point that God is calling me, calling you to himself to reflect more and more of Jesus over time. That perhaps through all that summer, through all that goodness, through all that joy that I was looking forward to, I may not be able to have reflect the degree of glory of Jesus through any other way other than through some disappointment, some hurt, some loss. That's what God is doing through every season, good and bad, ones that feel like they just went by in a blink of an eye, ones that feel like they're taken forever. In Jacob's case, one or two discernible degrees took 20 years. Friends, ours are also going to take a long time. Our growth likely will not be discerned, right? It will not likely be discerned until we get put into a situation that we once failed at, that 20 years later God puts us in a similar situation, and we did okay. And we don't realize that God's grown us over those years until we get put in a similar situation. We do okay, and we go, holy mo- that was great. I didn't, I, that was awesome. Like God's been with me. He's grown me over this time. 
See, growth takes longer than we want, and it, and it ultimately happens through the fire, does it not? Growth, though we would prefer it to happen in some other way, happens most through discomfort. That's why you're in a situation that didn't give you all that you'd hoped for because God has something better for you than all that you'd hoped for. Actually, more than that. And it's everything that he hoped for in you. Bring this up, my man Tim. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. I'm actually going to go there myself. Might have it right here. Here it is. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. going to come up on your screen. Look at this. The, the purpose of your trials, y'all. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't know about you. You've been grieved by various trials. So that, what was the purpose of those various trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, the place where you put your trust, the person where you have all your hope, and smooth circumstances? No. In the God who reigns and rules over every circumstance. The tested genuineness of your faith, uh, it, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. What's Peter getting at? The testing of your faith happens in trials to burn away all that doesn't belong to Jesus anymore. Yes, that's the purpose, that's the encouragement we have in Jacob. But there's one more person, right? Yes, Laban, yes, Jacob. And what is it that's motivating Jacob? What is it that's motivating him to live differently? If you read through it quickly, you may have missed it. There's two references to a very unique and new name of God. There, this is not said in any other passage in the Bible that I know of. Look at what Jacob says in verses 42 and verse 53. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, hmm, the fear of Isaac, capitalized fear. We go down to verse 53. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of of his father, Isaac. What's been the motivator for Jacob? It's not just God Almighty, but the fear of his father, Isaac. Not just the fear that Isaac had, but ultimately, the Bible's trying to tell us, it is the God of Isaac that inspires dread. Ooh. I don't know if I like that God. That feels like a scary God to me. But that God, who's the fear of Isaac that inspires dread, that showed up in a pillar of, of fire at some point, that, that delivered the curse of the firstborn over the Egyptians, the one that then became the firstborn of all creation for you and me, became one of us. Yes, that God who could kill everything and, every, and everyone who chooses not to and instead redeems and saves them. The one who came near to sinners. Yes, let the fear of Isaac, the God of Isaac who inspires dread, motivate us. That fear of Isaac stays present, present with his people. 
He will not be stolen or made unclean by sitting on him. Can't be done. He will not be left at the cafeteria line. He'll actually come with you, even if you don't want him to. He sees the affliction of his people in verse 42, right? That's what, that's what Jacob says. If my God, if the fear of Isaac had not been looking out for me all these years, you might have gotten away with this, Laban. But he's been watching. And he knows. And he defends his people. You see that throughout all of this passage in verse 7. You see God defending Jacob in verse 42, which we just read in verse 24. But the God, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful. You better not do anything to my boy Jacob. In verse 29, it says it basically again that Laban wants to kill him. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I have the power to do you harm, Jacob. No, God is defending his people. Fear of Isaac is not one to be afraid of, but respected as the one who is dreadful, who is holy, and yet he is good and beautiful. Because here's the, here's the truth. You too have the fear of Isaac at your defense. The God who inspires dread and awe defends you against your enemies, and I'm not talking about the enemies that you have chosen to be your enemies in this world, the ones that you can touch, because our enemies are not flesh and blood, Paul would say. No, the, the enemies that he is defending you against are sin and death and the world economy and the devil himself. You see, friends, they have no hold over you if you're a believer, They have no hold over you. The true enemies of the soul have no hold over you as long as you hold on to Christ. The fear of Isaac has appeared to your enemies in the person of Jesus, and he has done more than warn them to not touch you. He has rendered them impotent. He has rendered them useless and powerless against the blood of Jesus. He is the strong blood of Jesus, which has been poured out for the sake of sinners, of wanderers, of deceivers, of all the Labans in the world, of all the Jacobs of the world, of all the Wills of the world, and the Sydneys of the world, and the Kobe's of the world, and the U's of the world, and the Me's of the world. He's tracked us down and found all of us and brought us into his family. And so let us be a people who cling to our God, who is dreadful, who inspires all, who is holy, and yet draws near to those that need him the most. If Jacob is a reminder of anything, it's that we don't deserve the dreadful one to be kind to us. But oh, how he has promised to not just be kind, but to be rich in kindness, and in love to those who run the other way every chance we get. Let us live like like, like our God came near to us and is not far off in a land, a foreign land like Paddan Aram, but instead he has come to live and reign and rule in our hearts and in Fort Bend County of all places. Our God who revealed himself to Laban and Jacob has also revealed himself to you now. If you're in this room, you can't say God hasn't said something to you because we read his scripture and he has. And he's reminded you of your value. 
that he would send his one and only son to die for you, that if you would believe in his precious sacrifice on behalf of tainted sinner like yourself, that you would be called clean and forgiven and perfect and righteous and his boy and his daughter. He brings you close to whisper to you every chance he can get through his spirit that you're his. Oh, let us remember he has called us home to himself. So what's your response? Is it wonder or do you want to wander? Is it conviction to want to follow him? Or is it apathy to go, oh, it's okay, sermon kind of went long, wish I didn't have to do that. God is here in your midst, in his people, perhaps in your heart, calling you to follow, calling you to live a life of trust and dependence upon the God who comes to the defense of his people. Let's pray.